Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is neurologist Dr. David Perlmutter. You may know some of his previous books like Grain Brain, The Brain Maker. Well, his latest book is out tomorrow called Drop Acid. Now, it's not what you think. It's actually all about uric acid. And I think a lot of us think of, oh, gout or kidney stones, and that's for those kinds of people. But it's sort of a low-grade inflammation that can impact all of us. And This book was inspired originally, Perlmutter was going on a run and he was listening to a podcast between Dr. Peter Atia, whom I love, and Dr. Richard Johnson. And it was really all about the overall implications and impact on our health uh, with uric acid. And so for example, I already take quercetin, but now after learning some things in this conversation, I've upped my intake. He gives a ton of takeaways on ways that we can consider the impact of uric acid. You know, a lot of times it can just show up as a low-grade inflammation. Dr. Perlmutter is dedicated to helping us navigate better metabolic function. And it's clear, it's concise, and I really hope you enjoy. You know, Dr. Perlmutter, before we get into your your latest book, uh, Drop Acid, which comes out uh, by the time this airs, it'll be tomorrow. You know, I was first introduced to you, I think like a lot of people from Grain Brain, I read that book. But what I'd like to start with is actually your own practice. Because I, I, see, I look at you, I see that you live a healthy lifestyle. You even um, share some stories um, inside about this book, about sort of discovering on a run, listening to Peter Atia talk to Dr. Richard Johnson about uh, uric acid and kind of, you, you know, how this book came about. I would just love to know because, you know, for me, when people have all this information, I think civilians think, oh, they have it all figured out. It's very civilians, easy. Civilians, I love it. <laughs> well, you know, like, I mean, in this case, I'll even put myself in that, in that case. You bet. I think we all feel like civilians, even if we know something about something, because we look at other people and we think, oh, it must be easy for them. So I get the sense that since you were very, very young, I even came across a story about you at 16 years old writing an article, you know, just sort of like, were you born this way? And, you know, 
What are some of your practices that you have in place to support your own health? Because you're obviously busy and you have a, a lot going on and how you do that. Wonderful place to start. And uh, I think it paves the way for just a sense of transparency moving forward. And um, I am going to be, well, by the time this airs, I'll be 67, not a youngster anymore. And I am enjoying these years of my life, I think, because I've made the very changes that you're talking about and which are not easy for me. And I think therefore not easy for others. Um, And it's really about bringing the adult into the room and, and realizing that there's a big difference between what we want and what we know is better for us. We want our programming is to seek out sweet. Sweet means safe. It means good for us. It means survival. Our ancestors would find berries, eat berries, it would make extra fat, and we would survive during times of caloric scarcity. So we're all programmed. Everybody on the planet has a sweet tooth. But it's about bringing the adult into the room, bringing that you know part of your brain on board that says, okay, you want it right now, but what's going to be the long-term play? So you know, for over three decades of, of dealing with patients with very challenging neurological problems, which are by and large related to their lifestyle choices. And, you know, being with my father when he died of, of Alzheimer's disease, watching this really beautiful person be ravaged by a disease that is, you know, pretty much preventable, it really reinforced my need to do this, yes, for myself, but, you know, for, for my family as well, my children, my wife. And, uh, but, you know, um, John Kennedy always inspired us to uh, a sense of what's called noblesse oblige, meaning that, you know, if you have something and you can share it, that's good for other people, you should do so. And I've learned over the years and not trying to sound pompous that, you know, my particular gift is I have an ability to learn things and then transmit that information to other people so then they can have it. What they choose to do with it at that point is really up to them. The word doctor doesn't mean teach, uh, healer, it means teacher. My mission is to get information out. And I think that it's so incredibly valuable for me not just to get the information out, but to, to demonstrate that by, to teach by doing, by not you know, being in a situation, do as I say, not as I do, to set the example. Do I, am I 100%? No, I'm not. No one is. Did my wife and I recently have a thing for eating a gingerbread man? We had to find one. We did, and we ate it. And it was wonderful. But I'm really, I, I'm, I'm happy with where my health is today, and it's, it is what it is. That I'm at my age, I'm still running and, and you know, doing things sometimes competitively. That uh, at least for my own challenging myself, you know, that's a manifestation of doing the work and. You know, my my focus over my professional life has been brain health. And to think that we can tease apart physical health from brain health is kind of absurd. You know, brain health follows from keeping your body uh, physically healthy. Exercise is a powerful offset to risk for Alzheimer's, for example. It's one of the reasons I do it. I mean, I I watched what happened to dad, you know, and uh and it's tough. It's really tough. I had the opportunity uh, several uh, days ago to interview um, the daughter of President Reagan and talked about what she went through and uh, how that played out in her life. And hey, been there, done that. And uh, 
that's ravaging our, our elderly right now. If your risk of Alzheimer's, if you live to be age 85, is 50-50, and you can change that risk by what you do today. So that's an important message because the message we're getting is live your life however you choose, and then we have a pill ultimately that, oh, we're going to make one, count on us. We're going to make a pill that's going to turn things around. That's not reality. And so uh, I do my very best. Again, uh, certainly not perfect. I'm constantly competing uh, with myself to do better and to you know, achieve landmarks in, in uh, physical health and performance that uh, are you know, uh, benchmarks for me. But again, it's all part of the, in this time of social media and writing books and doing all the things, being on your podcast today, it's all part of that messaging. And, you know, I, I see that as a, as something I'm pretty good at. And uh, therefore, uh, I was recently asked on, uh, on a podcast, what is your definition of greatness? And I said, it's identifying what your skill set is and then pursuing it. That's what I do. Is it, is it reasonable? Like after, you know, sort of just doing some homework on you. And like I said, I was introduced to you with Grain Brain and you you start that book out by saying this was a very personal undertaking for you to try to really understand the mechanism of Alzheimer's more because of your father. Did, was that a moment where you sort of departed from a more traditional practice to this kind of broader communication? Ironically, it was not. Okay. And uh, uh, because you would think <laughs> that would be... Uh, the inspiration enough. And uh, no, I had started 15 years prior to really, I was in a mainstream practice and I had become really kind of disenchanted with the notion of treating symptoms and ignoring the underlying disease, treating the smoke, ignoring the fire. And even back then, there was uh, plenty of literature talking about how lifestyle choices influence your brain's destiny. And I thought, holy tamale, this is, this is great stuff. Why are we not talking about this? And I was in a practice with two other neurologists, and I started, believe it or not, talking to my patients about the food that they eat. Oh, my goodness. And uh, they, they would have no part of that. So it became clear I couldn't stay in the practice. I went and opened up my own little clinic with two employees. And you know, my partner said to me, good luck. You know, No one's going to come to see you if you're going out left field with nutrition and all that stuff. Uh, I'm happy to say that uh, we became very, very busy, and uh, you know, it, it looks like there was an interest in that. And and strangely, uh, when my dad w was declining, uh, here I am seeing Alzheimer's patients all day long, and I failed to recognize it in my own father. I remember the moment, the exact moment, when I finally got it, when he was, you know, saying things to me that were nonsensical. And I said to myself, he has Alzheimer's disease. How could I have missed it? And I, I missed it because, you know, I, I could never imagine my, my father, you know, a brilliant brain surgeon. I mean, I put him on a pedestal, still do. I couldn't, I just, that wouldn't enter my, my consciousness that he could have Alzheimer's disease. And when I finally got it, uh, it, was a, it was a moment because I knew what his destiny would be. So it, uh, it, it was interesting because he, uh, ended up residing in a assisted care facility that shared a parking lot with my medical practice and my neurology practice. And I would see him from seven to eight in the morning, then walk across the parking lot and go in and start seeing Alzheimer's patients. And, you know, they'd say to me, oh, doc, you just don't know what it's like to have your parent 
you know, have this problem. And I would look out the window and oftentimes I would say, well, matter of fact, I do. My father's in that facility that you can see right there and he's, he's suffering from this. So I do get it. And I think though it hurts and it hurts me even now to talk about it, it ultimately, I, I think had uh, an upside making me, you know, more with them, more compassionate and under, you know, really helped my understanding and really did motivate me though I had already been involved in, in this, you know, looking at the other factors, lifestyle, et cetera, really pushed me even further to spend more time and learn as much as I could write a book like grain brain, uh, that resonated, you know, people got that. They, they realized suddenly that their brain health and their entire metabolic health well beyond Alzheimer's, uh, was really in their hands and wasn't something to be, offloaded to the next great wonder pill that your doctor may have for you. You, and I want to get into metabolic health because I feel like a lot of times people, they compartmentalize things. They go, oh, I have diabetes or I have high blood pressure, or, uh, you know, Alzheimer's, but really sometimes it's the same situation is causing it, 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 you know, all of these problems. They're just expressing themselves differently in people. And it feels like in drop acid, you're sort of drilling down even a, maybe a little further. Um, before, I just want to, I, I sort of really remember this reading in Grain Brain. You talked about kind of how the brain, you know, if I have inflammation, I, for example, I already have an artificial knee from years of jumping, right? And I had knee pain. Your body lets you know, oh, shoulder, this hurts. You, you, you sort of said, listen, your brain can't let you know it's in a state of chronic inflammation. And that it's, it's like you have this window of time where you're sort of okay, but if it's almost like if you pass over in this inflammation or how long that that's maybe where there's a real problem. Do, is, do you feel that that's still the same way when it comes to Alzheimer's? Oh, even more so. I mean, you know, early on when we began talking about that, that was kind of new information, Alzheimer's, the brain on fire. And now we recognize that, you know, this inflammation, people are now you know, certainly far more aware of inflammation because of COVID and the so-called cytokine storm that's been described where these inflammatory chemicals are just exploding throughout the body and damaging everything in their wake, including the heart, the lungs, and the brain. So people get that. But, you know, there's also a consideration of the cytokine drizzle that while the levels of these damaging chemicals may not be as pronounced, the fact that they're acting over a long period of time, nonetheless, uh, is damaging to tissues. And the brain is exquisitely sensitive to these inflammatory chemicals. And they are upregulated or turned on in the Alzheimer's brain. We can measure these Alzheimer's, these uh, inflammatory chemicals. They have funny names like tumor necrosis factor alpha, which you can measure in the, in the spinal fluid and prove, demonstrate that it's elevated, that that brain is clearly on fire. So what that causes us to do is to take the step back, as you rightly characterize, Gabby, and that is, okay, what is that relationship with these problems with our metabolism? What is the relationship of inflammation with uh, being overweight or obese, uh, with having um, elevated blood sugar, being insulin resistant? And it's direct. You know, higher blood sugar changes our proteins and makes them more inflammatory. It's called a process called glycation. When our proteins bind sugar, it amplifies inflammation. Body fat is the 
you know, a reservoir make, just makes these inflammatory chemicals. They come from our body fat. Uh, it comes from having leakiness of the gut, whereby chemicals that should stay in the gut make their way into the systemic circulation and challenge our immune system, turning on the production of protective chemicals, uh, these inflammatory chemicals. But when they act unabated for a long period of time, the brain can't defend itself. And that's uh, it begins to suffer. So what are the markers? Well, you know when your knee is hurting. Uh, you know when other joints in your body are, are hurting because they turn red, they are painful, they may swell, but you don't know that in your brain. Well, you do know it. You know it when you become forgetful, when you can't remember your Wi-Fi passcode or your grandchildren's names, and you begin having these so-called uh, acceptable senior moments. There's nothing acceptable about them. They are harbingers for a future of brain decline. So how do you measure this? Well, I, I think one of the simplest measuring tools that we can to get a sense as to what level of inflammation you have in your body is a very sophisticated tool called a tape measure. You put it around your waist and right away you know, are you at risk for increased inflammation? There's a direct correlation between the size of your belly and the level of these damaging chemicals in your body. So it, it doesn't take much. You might have a blood sugar measurement or an average measurement called A1C. Most people are familiar with that. So elevated A1C, even mild elevation is strongly correlated. In fact, in grain brain, you'll see a nice graph uh, fr that shows that, that shows the degree of brain shrinkage over time with correlated with increasing A1C, your average blood sugar. That is a metabolic marker. It, it's part of your met metabolism. What is your blood sugar? And the exciting new news is that in the context of our ancestors, this was a survival mechanism that making more body fat, having a higher blood sugar level, higher blood pressure, higher levels of inflammation allowed us to survive for 99.9% .9 of our time on the planet these were things that paved the way for our survival. It's only very, very recently that uh, now with all the abundance of food and our more sedentary lifestyle, lack of restorative sleep, lack of uh, connection with nature, that these issues are going to a place where they're not coding for survival and how incredible it is that even before COVID, that our uh, longevity is now being compromised, that our lifespan, average lifespan in America and adults uh, is declining. And it's because we are just metabolically in a very, very bad place and getting worse. You know, there are, you know, a third of Americans now that are obese. And in 2030, that's the distant future. No, that's eight years from now. That number is going to be 50% of American adults not just being overweight, but obese. You know, we see that 10% of children between the age of 12 and 19 have hypertension. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. This is not because our genome suddenly changed. It's because of this relationship between what our genome is expecting and what we are presenting our genome with in terms of the environment, the food, the sleep, the exercise, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, I see you talk a lot about the conflict between our biology and our, our modern lifestyles. And I, I feel like, you know, this is, gets talked about a lot and everyone goes, yeah, it's terrible. And the telephone 
social media, it's terrible, but it doesn't feel like anything unless the individual, you know, is takes control themselves and it sort of starts there. It doesn't really feel like I, I almost sort of feel like businesses and schools and all these things, it's almost like we have to figure out how we can put systems in place because I don't think most people can get there on their own. I think it's, you know, unless you sort of created a tight knit community and everyone's rallying behind everybody about like meeting to exercise and figuring out what meals they're preparing or what have you. I think it's a really hard undertaking for a lot of individual people And like you said, at the top of this, it feeds into a really natural impulse more for us, like all of these things. And and so I'm, I'm always curious besides really trying to get everybody informed and giving them clear directives on like, Hey, these are some things you can do or test, um, how we're going to, you know, collectively the entire group help pull ourselves out of this. I'm, I'm, I always believe you have to stay hopeful and I think it is all hands on deck right now, but it is, it is sort of fascinating to watch. Yeah. And, and, you know, getting back to, I think your original question to me, uh, you know, about the motivation and I think it's to level the playing field because I think that people are getting messaging again, you know, based upon their inputs and social media inputs, television inputs that pretty much live your life. However, and modern medicine is going to fix your problem. And, you know, I think the level playing field is one that says, hey, all well and good. Medicines are great. But at the same time, uh, recognize that, you know, you got into this uh, mess because you were not eating appropriately. Here's what you need to do. Here's the empowering information for you to make uh, better choices. The problem is, and I I didn't think this was going to be the topic of our discussion today, but it's really interesting. We wrote about it in our last book called Brainwash. The problem is that this same inflammation that you and I are talking about, yeah, it's bad for the brain, bad for the heart, bad for how our bodies use insulin, et cetera, this same inflammation takes us away from the better decision-maker part of the brain and locks us into the more primitive amygdala decision-based uh, paradigm, whereby we don't make good decisions. So inflammation locks us into poor decision-making, takes this prefrontal cortex offline. We make poor decisions, and that even includes in our lifestyle choices, like the foods we eat. Let me unpack a little bit what I just said. We rely upon this prefrontal cortex, this advanced part of our brain to be the adult in the room and rein in top-down control over the more primitive part about, I want that jelly donut. I want it now because I want it. It's for me. The rest of the world be damned, right? We say using prefrontal cortex, the more advanced part of the brain, hey, jelly donuts might raise my blood sugar. I'm going to gain weight. I'm not going to, all the things, right? Uh, But that connection, that top-down control is threatened by the process of inflammation. Now, Our modern American, standard American diet, SAD, has become the Western diet. It's pro-inflammatory, and that's pretty much the global diet now, highly processed foods. The global diet is pro-inflammatory. The global diet is taking the prefrontal cortex offline around the world so people are making more decisions about what they want right now for themselves no consideration of how their actions affect other people, affect the planet, affect the future. So it's really 
quite a, a concept to embrace this, uh, you know, change in global decision-making based upon how the diet of the planet has changed. Right. Like, what is it? 60% of it is processed foods, I think, at least in the U.S., right? Something like that. Yeah. And, and of those processed foods, let me just add, because it'll get to where we're going to go. And that is that north of 60% of the foods in the grocery store that carry a barcode have added sweetener. By and large, that is fructose. Fructose becomes uric acid. Uric acid is the alarm signal telling your body, hey, you're not going to have food or water. You had better make fat. And, you know, and, and it's hard to resist. Everybody, yourself included, everybody on the planet has a sweet tooth because it's a powerful survival mechanism. If it weren't for the sweet tooth, we wouldn't have sought out those ripened berries that were at their peak of nutritional value that triggered us to have this system whereby we would make fat and we could survive. I wonder if they're going to use technology to figure out how to temper the the prefrontal cortex. I mean, like, I almost start to think like they're going to hook everybody up to something that controls it from that top down. I mean, <laughs> Gabby, I, it's I, already happening. I mean, I was going to ask you if you've heard you conversations bet. about it. Yes. Uh, social media, screen time immediately uh, tends to favor your connection uh, to making decisions and acting from uh, the amygdala. What do you think pop-up pop ads are designed to do? What do you think all this messaging, the fear-mongering is all about, which then at the end of that event has a call to action? It's all about activating the amygdala to cause you to respond uh, impulsively. Impulsive activity comes from the amygdala. That's why we impulse buy. It's to satisfy that part of our brains and take that prefrontal cortex offline. Here's what's even more worrisome. Those areas of the brain uh, that are light up with pleasure and we, we seek to uh, turn on, uh, we can map that now using functional MRI. And functional MRI is being used in what used to be called focus groups to determine what type of advertising is going to light up those parts of the brain best uh, in terms of selling our product. That's right. scary business. I was, I'm, I'm actually saying it the reverse where maybe somebody comes up with something that people can hook up um, to get that prefrontal cortex in the driver's seat. <laughs> and it's there. And you, uh, you do it. <laughs> that's already there. And it's using uh, one of the various apps for meditation or meditating without an app. Uh, you, there are devices that allow you to uh, enter into a state of consciousness that through biofeedback lets you stay there, that measure what's called galvanic skin resistance, a little thing, and you can light up your prefrontal cortex. The more you do that, the more that prefrontal cortex is online, the better is your decision-making, the better is this top-down control, bringing the adult back into the room and reining in that six-year-old who, you know, that's why six-year-olds don't drive cars and, and, you know, make adult decisions. You have to be 18 to do this or that, to vote, to buy alcohol, whatever it may be, because we know that as we gain years, we gain better decision-making ability. Unfortunately, nowadays, uh, we can leave it at that. Yeah. So if somebody is very young, 30 years old, you know, an adult, but still quite young, is it, is, do you think it's important to sort of find ways to, I mean, obviously besides supporting with 
lifestyle, food, exercise, relationships, moments of quiet, being out in nature. When they go to get their checkups, is there a way, is there something that someone can ask for to say, hey, I just want to check certain things, inflammation markers or what have you, so that they can sort of feel like they're involved with, because a lot of people, especially if they have it in their family, um, because I think a lot of us tend to yield towards like, well, my par- somebody in my family had it, so that means I'm destined for it versus really the relationship of lifestyle. But let's say they think, I really want to stay on top of it because you know this, you're in this business. People are very concerned about um, Alzheimer's. Um, is there things that they can request? Well, it, uh, it really speaks to the notion of being your own health advocate. And, you know, we were always told, well, it's strange coming from me, but people in general have always been told, be a good patient. And what does that mean? It means go to the doctor, hear what she or he has to say, and leave it at that. They know best. Well, you know, these days you have access to so much information uh, that you can be your own health advocate. You can wear a continuous glucose monitor and determine what your blood sugar is moment to moment and make changes in your lifestyle, your food choices, for example, getting enough sleep that will have a positive impact on that particular metric. You can wear a ring that gives you the sense of the quality and duration of your sleep and make lifestyle manifestations because, uh, modifications because we know that restorative uh, sleep is powerfully it's a tonic. It's powerfully effective in keeping you healthy. So I think that we're seeing uh, a lot of these decisions and actions coming out of the doctor-patient arena and really entering the, the arena of the um, personal health care advocate position. And I'm so in favor of it because, you know, when you're constantly informed about the very metrics that you talk about, we can then use that information to make changes as it relates to uric acid. You can go on any on Amazon if you must, or wherever, and buy a uric acid monitor. Not expensive. Check. And in fact, I think we sent you one. You can check your own uric acid level at home and know what it is every couple of weeks. Know how you're doing with regard to this incredibly important uh, metabolic marker. So I'm all in as it relates to being informed. And you know, frankly. You might ask a doctor, uh, what about my inflammation markers? What about my, can I reduce my risk of this or that? And, you know, sometimes it's said that people tend to be down on what they're not up on. And it's, you can't assume that everybody in, in healthcare is up to speed on all this really important information. Like, for example, you getting your genome sequenced and then having a sense as to what foods you might uh, do better on what drugs you should avoid, you know, all the cool things that you can learn about your personal lifestyle choices based upon knowing what your genome looks like, based upon knowing what your gut bacteria look like. That's incredibly powerful information. And we're right at the nascent stage of learning how we leverage that for specifically what are Gabby's uh, best choices, not for anybody else, but just for you. And I think that's one thing exciting about telemedicine. So if you live in a place and maybe you don't have an access to somebody that you have this confidence in, that there are a lot of people out there. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. 
Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If someone, let's say they're doing all the right things in lifestyle, but they are a stress case. Their waistline is perfect. Their diet. Oh, what a terrible thing to call somebody. <laughs> well, I'm just saying you have people. I hear you. Because sometimes even being diligent creates a weird amount of stress. Like I see it all the time in performance. You see it all the time where people are like, they hit the mark and they rate, they're weighing their food and they're just like this. And they're almost having a different form of rigidity. Could that, that can impact your brain and your overall health? No question. It can create stress, creates cortisol, increases inflammation, and that's counterproductive. So, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of people who feel like they're doing everything that they can. They, they probably know there are a few more things they could do, but they're doing the, the best that they can. And, and I generally believe them, you know, uh, you know, there are times when you wonder, but I generally, when patients uh, say that, you know, I'm really doing the best I can, I'm going to the gym, I'm, watching my carbs and all that. And that's why this whole uric acid story becomes so empowering because it isn't the end all, but it is yet another powerful new, brand new tool in the toolbox. Look, you know, we thought that uric acid was about gout, end of story. But the notion that uric acid is playing such a pivotal role in regulating our metabolism is huge. There was an article uh, written in 2016 by researchers in Turkey and Japan, and it's called Uric Acid in Metabolic Syndrome from Innocent Bystander to Central Player. Meaning it's not that it just happens to be elevated in diabetes, hypertension, obesity, uh, dyslipidemia, but it's playing a causal role. So when we take the steps, we take the quercetin, we take the luteolin, uh, for example. We reduce our consumption of fructose by not drinking fruit juice or sodas. Uh, we, we you know, make sure we exercise, do all the right things, and our uric acid levels come down. That is often that missing link that people knew darn well had to be out there somewhere. Because again, I'm doing everything I possibly can, and it's, I'm not exactly where I want to be with my BMI or fitting into my outfit that I want to wear to my high school reunion, whatever it may be. And I'm trying awful hard, but that specific diet doesn't seem to be working. So this is yet uh, a, another tool, but this is turning out to be a really powerful tool. And well, is it called a U? What's it called? A UAZER kit, or what was the? What the was one the- I u- use is called UASUR. U A S U R. And again, um, you can get it on uh, anywhere. I mean, you can buy it on Amazon. There, buy it online. Uh, we should be sending you one anyway. So it'd be great to know. Uh, you can text me or email me. Let me know what your uric acid is. I'd be very interested to know. Okay. So wait, let's talk about the the numbers. You, I mean, the standard they talk about is 5.5, but you like it lower. You like it better. No, 5.5 is what we like. Now the standard is seven. Okay, that's so it. If you go to your doctor and have a blood test for uric acid and it's seven, they're going to tell you that, well, you're in the normal range. Two points. Number one, that's the, uh, the, the normal range as it relates only to gout because above seven, then the uric acid crystallize, you know, uh, 
it comes and forms crystals in your joints and is, is a big deal. The other thing is, uh, I'm not about normal range at all, nor are you. Uh, we want optimal. We want peak performance. We want what's best. So that's where we want to get to levels of 5.5 or lower, because anything above 5.5 is when we start to increase risk for things like cardiometabolic disease. You know, one study that came out in 2009 was uh, involved 90,000 people, 42,000 uh, men, 48,000 uh, women, and followed them for eight years. They found that people with the higher levels of uric acid had about a 16% increased risk of what is called all-cause mortality, meaning becoming dead for any reason whatsoever. They had a 38% increased risk of dying of cardiovascular disease, a 35% increased risk of dying of stroke. And what I found really interesting was that for every point elevation above seven, so from seven to eight, from eight to nine, there was an eight to 13% increased risk, again, of all-cause mortality. Higher uric acid, higher chance you're going to die, not just of heart disease or stroke, but of anything. So pretty compelling. And again, Japanese literature, they're way ahead of this. And, you know, we have kind of an attitude in America. We, you know, we lead the pack. We know all this stuff, but there's great research being done around the world. That's for sure. So you, you get inspired uh, about this topic, listening to, I, be, I believe, Dr. Richard Johnson and, and Peter Atia. And you, you decide to, after probably doing a lot, a ton of research, um, write drop acid and, you know, in there, I think, what is it? 3% of people that ha have high uric acid have gout. So I think like you said earlier, like, or kidney stones, like everybody associates, oh, well, that's a, that's a gout issue. What about this grabbed you and you thought, oh, this, this is really something to dive into. What about their conversation? Because um, I, I know Dr. Johnson was like a kidney specialist. Um, <laughs> well, what, here, what here, sure, I, I, let me answer and, and tell yeah. you that anything that has to do with metabolic health is going to light me up, first of all, whether it's continuous glucose monitoring, intermittent fasting, anything that has uh, can pull a lever that would give us better, better metabolic health I'm in because that's what, you know, my whole mission is as it relates to the brain and other things, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, all metabolic issues. Uh, maybe it's because I was running at the time and things really get to my, into my depth when I'm listening to them when I'm running. Uh, but there was something very special about this uh, Dr. Richard Johnson. He's dedicated the, his past 20 years to this exploration of uh, uric acid and metabolic health in animals and then in human interventional trials. And I, I just loved his voice. He was so pleasant and sweet and dedicated so that uh, I wasn't uh, through with the podcast when I finally came, came back to pass by my own mailbox. Run is finished, right? Time to stop. So I kept running. I did the course again because uh, I had to hear the whole podcast, which was, I think, an hour and 41 minutes uh, which is a little on the longer run for me, that's for sure. Uh, and then got home and listened to it again. And then I did what anyone would do. I called Richard Johnson. I emailed him and got on the phone with him. We began a series of conversations uh, about um, uric acid. And I realized uh, he's an incredible man uh, doing some incredible work. And um, you know, my job is to report this, 
to morph this information in a way that people can use it in their lives. But I dedicated this book to him uh, because he's the one who, who really, uh, to me, if I were on the Nobel Committee, I would vote that he would win the Nobel Prize for this discovery. Uh, and he, uh, I wrote the foreword to his new book on the same topic. Um, so, you know, interestingly, though, <laughs> you'll find this uh, interesting, uh, that the first book about elevated uric acid related to high blood pressure, to dementia, to depression, was published in 1894 uh, by Dr. Alexander Haig. So this is not new. I mean, how we got so fixated on the gout story, I think, has to do with the fact that medicines were developed that could lower uric acid. And it turns out, interestingly, that two things I mentioned earlier, quercetin and luteolin, which are health food store bioflavonoids, work in exactly the same fashion as the pharmaceuticals that lower uric acid. So it's an interesting uh, picture. The quercetin, it was like a five, a 500... Uh... You, yeah. And there are so many reasons to take quercetin. I've been taking it for years. I mean, with COVID, even that's like, it feels like one of the bottom six that you always hear about, right? You hear about the vitamin C and quercetin and magnesium and zinc, but it's always showing up even in a protocol for just overall health. And Yeah. I mean, and for all, really all the good reasons. Um, let me go ahead and be a little technical here because I know you'll enjoy it. And I would bet that many of your uh, people in your audience have heard about what I'm about to talk about. Our metabolism is governed by two pathways. One of them is called AMPK or AMP kinase. Am I ringing a bell? Okay, good. And the other is the, the metabolism of AMP through a different pathway called AMP deaminase. By and large, we want to keep our AMP kinase side of that, uh, of that uh, switch activated because when we activate AMP kinase, it tells the body no need to make fat, no need to store fat, go ahead and burn it, be a fat burning machine. You don't need to make extra blood sugar. That's what we want to do, activate AMP kinase. And how do we do that? We do that by exercise, by taking quercetin. That's what that triggered my thought process just now. Uh, it's where the drug metformin works for diabetics so they don't make more sugar in their bloodstream, in the liver, gluconeogenesis. So we want to keep our AMP kinase activated. There is a time when you might want to activate the other side called AMP deaminase to make a lot of body fat, to store a lot of body fat, to turn on your blood sugar production and to ratchet down your metabolism. That would be a time if you're getting ready to enter a cave and hibernate for six months. That's what happens in bears. They activate the other side of the pathway. They shut it down. It turns out that uric acid, when it's increased, activates the hibernation pathway, if you will, telling our bodies make and store fat because winter is coming and takes us away from activating AMP kinase, takes us away from being lean, mean, fat-burning machine. So uh, as it relates to that, it's, it's really a fascinating story. And in the context of our ancestors, AMP deaminase, making fat, storing fat, increasing our blood sugar, powerful survival mechanism we wouldn't be here today had, had it not been for the fact that we had that ability. And that ability is something we gained about 14 to 17 million years ago when the earth became cooler and food resources became scarce. 
those of our primate ancestors who made more uric acid survived. And it's why everyone walking the planet right now has this mutation uh, in the genes that make the enzyme called uricase that breaks down uric acid. We lost that. So we don't break it down. Our uric acid level is four to five times higher than other mammals, but but certainly not those primates that are around today. So it being thought, you know, for a long time as like a waste product, and now you guys are really talking about um, it being an important marker. How do you deal with, you know, coming out with something because every, I think people have, you take an individual path on things. And so inevitably someone's going to push against you. It's like your practice. I hope so. <laughs> right. With two other, your other neuroscientists going, you know, you should go off on your own if you want to talk about eating vegetables and exercising connected to brain health. What do, where do you put that for you as a person? How do you navigate when people kind of maybe, it's not that they don't agree, but they go, oh, come on, you know, what's the science on this? Been there many times in my yeah. life, gratefully. And, uh, you know, first I wrote, actually, I think it was my eighth book, Grain Brain. And a uh, one professor who is a bit vociferous, uh, when Grain Brain came out, said, oh, this is nonsense. Um, and then, uh, you know, five years later, he has incorporated Grain Brain into his Alzheimer's prevention program at an Ivy League medical school. So, you know, truthfully, initially people can be down on what they're not up on. But, you know, that book was written with an extensive review of the science, as is a drop acid. You know, there are more than 400 references that are reviewed or in the back of this book uh, that really indicate this is not that Dr. Perlmutter thinks about this stuff. Yeah, I think about it, but it's what our research is telling us. But if there weren't pushback, then, uh, you know, we'd be status quo, right? We can't be status quo. Ronald Reagan said... That, the de- that status quo is a Latin term for the mess we are in. So we've got to push. We've got to push. You know, it's not that I want to be outside the box, ultimately. I want the box to be bigger. I want the box to be expanded to embrace these forward-thinking ideas. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. Uh, am I wrong time to time? You bet I am. And I learn from those mistakes and then move forward. It's like, uh, you know, Thomas Edison and the light bulb. You learn from what doesn't work and you learn then from ultimately what does work. So having said that, um, I I have learned over time to very much welcome the pushback that I get. I will get, uh, uh, I'm, you know, with drop acid, acid, I've gotten it for years, but it's become a very comfortable place uh, for me to be. Because I think that's a lot, a lot of people, maybe they want to do something new or they have an opinion, but I think it gets increasingly more scary. And you as a scientist and a doctor, that's even another level to deal with because people will come that's in, right. you know, it's, a, it's, it's very different. So I always really appreciate that your work has, has that sort of built, built into it. Can we slide over to uric acid and the relationship with your microbiome? Sure. And as you would probably expect, uh, there are some significant interplays then between uh, uric acid and the microbiome and the microbiome and uric acid as well. So the, uh, the microbiome, let's just take a step back. We're talking about the various organisms that live within us and upon us. So not just in the gut, but that's where we're going to focus in a moment, but in our mouths, on our skin, uh, throughout our bodies. 
even in the brain, there exist microorganisms, though uh, not everybody is willing to embrace that. Uh, you know, we know that to be true, and we've adopted a relationship uh, with these organisms. The, the gut organisms really have a huge role to play in inflammation and in managing metabolic health, like risk for diabetes, insulin sensitivity, et cetera. Those correlate with changes in the gut bacteria. When the gut bacteria are not up to snuff in terms of their diversity or their numbers, they can't maintain the lining of the gut as adequately, and the gut then become, becomes permeable, or what has been colloquially called um, leaky gut, where things in the gut get out into the systemic circulation and can cause that powerful uh, mechanism called inflammation. And the relationship with uric acid is interesting because uric acid elevation favors in the gut uh, an overabundance of pro-inflammatory organisms. Elevated uric acid is associated with increased leakiness or permeability of the gut lining, amplifying inflammation. And interestingly, most recently, what is called fecal microbial transplant, which means taking the gut bacteria and fecal contents, if I may, from a healthy individual and instilling that into the colon of a person who has gout, those studies show reduced frequency of gout attacks, likely because of their effects upon uric acid. So everything's connected. And, you know, the gut bacteria by virtue of this mechanism related to inflammation, influences brain health. Uh, gut bacteria change the expression of our DNA. They're changing our life code expression. That's a pretty heady concept to, to get your arms around. It Well, let's take home message. At the end of the day, once you start thinking about this, you realize, I sure as heck better take better care of my gut bacteria because They've got my future in their hands. Those trillions of bacteria that are in my gut right now are making vitamins. They're making neurotransmitters, which means they're affecting my mood from moment to moment. They are controlling the set point of inflammation. Uh, they are controlling whether or not I have an autoimmune condition. And yes, they help to determine our outcome should we get an infection like COVID. Uh, interestingly, though, more germane to our discussion today, a recent study showed that when you go into the hospital with COVID, those people who have high levels of uric acid, this was a study, they measured uric acid on admission to the hospital, high levels of uric acid are associated with an almost threefold increased risk of ending up in the ICU or on a ventilator or dying. That's how profound elevation of uric acid is in terms of the functionality, for example, of your immune system. And certainly it may be through how uric acid relates to metabolic health. We all know that if you go into the hospital with COVID and you are obese, your risk of, of bad outcome is dramatically increased as it is with hypertension, as it is with having type 2 diabetes. Metabolic problems for which uric acid is playing a powerful role. And I think it's important for people to know that you can have high levels of uric acid and be very, quite young. So it isn't, oh, and, and obviously I think in health, there's so many things that are the accumulation of, but also this is something that you could be genetically predisposed on top of with your lifestyle where you can have pretty high uric acid. So I think it's something for 
people to, to really consider. And I appreciated you even talked about uric acid goes down, blood pressure goes down. So again, there's these really direct, great measures. Um, as we start to wind down, I do want to hit the alcohol, the beer. Oh, so as we start to wind down, we're going to hit the alcohol? Yeah. I don't know how that's going to sound, but anyway, <laughs> well, I, a lot of people do that. They wind down with alcohol, but yeah, I great don't, point. I don't, I don't have a moral issue with alcohol. I personally don't consume alcohol. Um, I just grew up with, um, on an island in the Caribbean where everyone consumed a ton of it, and it just looked like a lot of chaos. <laughs> so it was never uh, my, my thing. But in, in looking at it, of course, I think, you know, people can be moderate about things. But one of the things I think you talk about is that beer is really, when it comes to your gas and not your friend. That's right. And, you know, the, there are only three sources of uric acid in your body. Fructose, whether you take it in or your body makes fructose, which it does from consuming salt. Um, alcohol, metabolized exactly the same way as fructose, directly into uric acid. And then a substance called purines, chemicals called purines, which are the breakdown products of DNA and RNA, both from our own tissue breakdown when we exercise aggressively uh, and, you know, certainly for somebody like you as an athlete, something to think about, but also purines that are high in certain foods like organ meats, et cetera. Uh, but the big issue is, of course, uh, a fructose. But when we, we look at alcohol, it turns out that wine in women is actually associated with lower uric acid levels. Could be because of the uh, polyphenols, bioflavonoids that are involved in lowering uric acid. In men, wine is a bit neutral. Hard alcohol associated with increased risk, but beer is way up there. So both men and women drinking beer, uh, very strong association with high uric acid. Why might that be? Because beer contains alcohol, but it also contains a lot of purines. Why? Because it's made from yeast. Yeast is very cellular, has a lot of DNA and RNA, so when you're drinking beer, you're getting uh, you're hitting the uric acid from two of the three pathways, the alcohol and the purine pathway. Interestingly, I mentioned earlier how ahead uh, of us uh, Japan seems to be. They are now marketing no purine beer, recognizing that purine leads to uric acid. So you can go if you're in Japan, and hopefully they're making their way to America. You can buy uh, beer that does not have purines. But understanding that alcohol and purines amplify this whole process of uric acid and therefore fat production absolutely lets us understand that there's good biochemistry that explains the beer belly. It's not something that, you know, they get because uh, they're drinking a lot of beer and not exercising enough. You know, it's very hard to exercise away a crappy diet. And so it is with beer that you're targeting this survival uh, pathway uh, by two inroads, both alcohol and purines. So, you know, there's good understanding there. You know, the other thing I'll mention is that one of the important survival mechanisms uh, that's involved with, with laying down extra fat is it's a hedge against dehydration. So when we burn fat for energy, we're making an awful lot of water. For every gram of, of fat that we burn for energy, we are exhaling carbon dioxide and we're making free water for our bodies. So this notion of storing fat as a survival mechanism is also a survival mechanism in the context of dehydration. 
So, you know, people need to understand that that's where this is coming from. That's why these things happen. That when we're looking like we're dehydrated because our sodium is getting higher, because we're eating a lot of salt, that it's telling our bodies that we are dehydrated better, make more fat as a hedge against this dehydration. I think it's important to think about that. I mean, the camel's hump isn't filled with water, it's filled with fat. So that as that camel is walking across the desert, metabolizes that fat. It's a fat-burning machine, but that's giving it free water. I mean, one of the reasons whales are so fat is because that's where their fresh water comes from. Well, frankly, we don't need that. We have access pretty much to be <laughs> to drink water, so we don't need to store fat as a reservoir, a resource for fresh water. But the point I'm trying to make is that you can get into this uric acid pathway by making your own fructose. Salt elevation by consuming fat or becoming dehydrated triggers the process by which our own blood sugar, glucose, is converted into fructose, and that turns on this whole cascade of uric acid, our survival pathway saying make fat because we need water. Who knew that? You know, we've known for a long time that high salt diet is associated with obesity and diabetes. But now we know the mechanism and it involves uric acid. You know, I have to tell you, I have never heard that. Well, you got to think about why does a camel have a hump? I know. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing you think of when you're getting ready to fall asleep at night. And we've pondered this and now, uh, gosh, it all fits together. It's really exciting information. You have to, you have to, you have to give it to it that it's really kind of cool to finally get some understanding of all this physiology and and what it means in the context of of our past of our ancestors and you know how we are today experiencing this mismatch between our evolution and our environment and as you mentioned I I wrote about that when I was 16 in, in uh, the Miami Herald in 1971 long before you were around Gabby that's for sure where I just wondered about what do we do with this outdated machinery that isn't really able to genetically or through evolution adapt to the sudden change in our environment that we are now experiencing, unlike anything humans have ever been exposed to. And, and that's the thing is I think it, it can feel overwhelming, but instead my hope is that people get this sense of empowerment and that there's people totally. like out there that go, okay, listen, there's tools. It is hard. We're fighting some biological stuff, but we can navigate this little by little. Um, I know you, you wouldn't, you know, sort of say to people, take these supplements, but if you sort of, you know, we, we talked about quercetin, if there were just supplements, cause I think this is something that's confusing and people are always you know, trying to figure out if there's ones that show up for you that feel really important, um, which ones are those? Well, first in the context of uric acid, quercetin, 500 milligrams a day. I can't say enough about quercetin. Um, and then luteolin as well as a, a bioflavonoid, hundred milligrams per day. DHA tends to offset some of the issues related to fructose consumption fish oil, or you can, there's a vegetarian form as well, a uh, thousand milligrams per day. Um, vitamin C, good old vitamin C, inexpensive, 500 milligrams per day for a number of reasons. You know, our, we as humans don't make vitamin C. Why that is, I think we'll have to do another podcast, but um, so 500 milligrams a day, that powerfully 
accentuates our excretion of uric acid. And finally, one of the biggest issues uh, from fructose consumption is the development of what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, fat accumulating in the liver. That's not a good thing, multiple reasons. So there is something called chlorella. Any health food store would have it. Chlorella vulgaris is the Latin name. That would be 1,000 milligrams per day. So those are the key five that I talked about in drop acid. I will say there are others that I think are important. I take supplemental vitamin D every day and supplemental zinc. I take a broad spectrum probiotic. I take what is called an NAD precursor. The one I take is called nicotinamide riboside. I take about uh, 600 milligrams of that daily. I also take a supplement that raises something called sulforaphane in in my body. Either that or I chew uh, broccoli sprouts. Uh, Again, maybe we'll talk about that uh, at another time, but um, I do take a multi-mineral supplement. I use a lot of what is called prebiotic fiber uh, as a supplement in addition to eating a lot of prebiotic foods uh, that uh, are nurturing the gut bacteria. That's the reason to take additional prebiotic fiber. Our ancestors might have gotten as much as 100 grams of fiber a day. Typically, you know, Americans are eating less than 20 grams per day. The prebiotic I take is derived from something called acacia gum. Acacia is that that tall tree in Africa that the giraffes are underneath during the noonday sun. It secretes a gum, which is harvested, doesn't harm, harm the tree at all. Uh, and uh, prebiotic fibers made from that. And as I'm looking at my box mentally, uh, I take a multi as well, a multivitamin as well. Now, did you have any secrets besides modeling you and your wife to your kids to sort of, in, you know, hope, pray that they would, you know, you know, cause I have, I have three daughters. My youngest is 13. So I have two sort of, they're, you know, they're, they're down the road and they eat well. And, and by the way, one of them in the, you know, in her early teens, uh, you know, there was not a carbohydrate that she didn't love. And she really, and I just sort of sat back and watched and provided good foods at mealtime. But I also let the reins go because it was like, I don't want to make this an issue. I'm going to believe that, you know, you'll cir- go through it and circle around. Did you, in your family, did you have sort of any ways? Because I think there's a lot of parents that sort of try to navigate their kids eating. That's that's very challenging. And, you know, um, uh, you, you know, both you and your husband are obviously deeply involved in staying in the best shape that you possibly can and made the various choices, whatever they are, to, to achieve that. And then you want to try to set an example uh, for your children. It isn't easy. I know it's not easy. And I, I have some friends uh, named uh, The Shares Eyes who's written, written a recent, they've created a recent cookbook about Alzheimer's. And, you know, they, they, they really seem to have nailed it in terms of, you know, how much pressure you exert. If you exer- exert too much pressure, it'll break. And then you're, you've lost all influence. So uh, I, I think what, what we've done is, you know, we've always eaten, uh, had dinner at home with our kids. Uh, unless, of course, they had some kind of sporting thing that they were involved in, you know, evening soccer, whatever it may be. Uh, but my wife cooked dinner every night for our children. And made them their lunch for school and made them breakfast. Did they, you know, uh, visiting their friends and this, that, and the other? Of course they did. We all did. Uh, but 
what ha- what I've noticed that happens with our kids now that are age uh, 31 and 33 uh, that, uh, you know, hopefully since you've set an example is they will, there will come a time when they realize that, uh, you are onto something and they will, I, I think generally what you're hoping hap- will happen, will happen that they'll start to see some of their friends that are not as healthy. Uh, certainly as it relates to their complexion, they're going to wonder about the foods that they're eating. That's a big thing in teenage years. But I will say that, um, uh, over the years, people have said, Dr. Perlmutter, when should we start instituting the Alzheimer's prevention program, the Alzheimer's prevention diet? And what we know now is that we have markers for Alzheimer's risk that we can see in 30-year-olds that will set the stage for Alzheimer's two and three decades into the future. So I would say, okay, 30-year-olds. But then we realize that metabolic issues are really profound risk factors for Alzheimer's and heart disease and diabetes and cancer. And, you know, we're seeing, as I mentioned earlier, those metabolic issues in people in their 20s, in people in their teens, in adolescents. So when does it begin? And you are called as a parent to, to think about that, to set these kids up for the best, you know, future health-wise that you can. When does it begin? It begins... Uh, when your child is in gestation, when you are bearing that developing fetus, what you did then has a huge role to play. How that child is delivered vaginally or via cesarean section has a huge role to play in setting up that child's primordial microbiome. Passing through the vaginal birth canal anoints that newborn with bacteria in his or her mouth and nose and face that sets the seeds for the development of their entire body microbiome and sets the stage for, stage for the level of inflammation, autoimmunity risk, for example. So when does it begin? It begins very, very early. Getting back to your question, it is a challenge, but I think that gets back to the, the very first question you asked me, and that is set the example. Do the best you can, set the example. And you gotta, you know, if you want them or anyone to listen to what you have to say, for me, it's you know, patients or people involved in my outreach is you, you pretty much have to walk the talk and be transparent, not a distant and in a doctor patient relationship I'm speaking from right now. You can't isolate yourself from those individuals with that examining table in the middle. We're all in this together. We're all at risk together. And, uh, I think to walk the talk and set the example is probably the most important thing a person can do in healthcare uh, to get messages across. And same thing as a parent. Yeah. I used to love that Paul. I don't know if you know who Paul check is, but he used to say your doctor and your trainer should practice it as close to the nude as possible. So you can see how it's working for them. You bet. <laughs> well, you're a great example of that. I, d- I do want to just talk about one thing really quickly because it, we talked about it briefly, but also when you train very hard, it can, it kicks your body's ass. It does, and it raises your uric acid transiently. Good yeah. point. You so are right. I don't want to leave that behind because I think sometimes all people, they'll be training and they, I think you can almost feel it. I, I really feel like you can just. You can. Uh, yeah. There's no question that you can attune yourself to feeling higher levels of inflammation in your body. Your mood will change. You know, depression is an inflammatory disorder. But it, it brings to my mind this notion of what are the 
what are the caveats about checking at home your uric acid level? And as I talk about in the book, you shouldn't train hard the day or two before because you're going to break down muscle tissue. You're going to liberate these purines. They're going to be metabolized in the uric acid. So it's going to be erroneously, well, it's correct. I mean, it's not an error. It's going to be elevated. Not that you shouldn't train hard. You should, but be prepared. If you happen to check your uric acid that next day or the day after, it might well be elevated. You should not really be surprised if during fasting, if you are a person who likes to fast from time to time, your uric acid level is going to be elevated. Why? Because you're catabolic. You're breaking down your body's tissue to make uh, glucose and, and you're using hopefully fat at that point as well. And that's going to kick up your uric acid level transiently. But your uric acid level will return to baseline within a couple of days after you start eating again and may actually be a little bit improved. I would avoid alcohol the night before a uric acid uh, check as well. But again, I'm speaking to this idea uh, of being involved, getting uh, checking your uric acid, learning what it's all about. Have your doctor draw a blood test or buy a kit uh, and do it at home. This is a powerful tool. And it also speaks to the notion of even more reason why when you're really intensely training, uh, especially at a level that you're not so used to, uh, that you want to be thinking about things like vitamin C and especially quercetin. Uh, there are any number of brands out there, but quercetin maybe I actually take a thousand milligrams. In the book, I mentioned five hundred milligrams. Why? Because that's what all the literature talks about. I take a thousand a day because I push it. Uh, even at my age, I push it to a level often that uh, I know, you know, based upon what I'm reading on my my uh, Apple Watch, yeah. I'm I'm there, you know, my pulse rate is where I want it to be for an extended period of time. So I want to do the best I can to offset even that transient elevation of my uric acid and and all the other great things that quercetin does. So yeah. I'm really dialed in on, on that. So, but you bring up some really good points. Well, I just want to bring that up because I think sometimes a lot of times when we're doing the right things, sometimes that it, there's things in that, that there's temporary moments where you don't feel like your best. And that's also, you know, perfect for the course. So you Dr. bet one step, one step back, two steps forward. Yeah. And, uh, sometimes, and oftentimes that stress is ultimately good for you. We call it hormesis. Uh, it's good to stress your body. It's good to stress it with exercise, good to stress it with, uh, hot and cold, you know, being in a sauna, being in cold immersion, as you well know, these are transient stresses that actually activate great pathways for you know regaining health reducing inflammation quenching free radicals all all the things that you know your viewers certainly know about well and i feel like if i if i do it those positive ways i actually do it less in my in the, in the negative ways <laughs> you know like that's right I'm not picking fights with anyone and whatever stirring the pot well and dr Promoter, i really appreciate um your work and your latest book um is out tomorrow drop acid. And then do you have an, I see, I think your, your books, I always encourage people to buy the actual book because it is also like a reference and there is so much information, but will you have it on audio? Audio and uh, ebook as well. But, but like you, I mean, I, it's, it's all about the hard, I don't like to travel with them. That's when an ebook is, is better, but I, I go through highlighter pens. Uh, you know, I, I'm constantly replacing my highlighter pens yellow, my color of choice. 
But uh, I highlight my books. And then what I like to do is I go back and read the highlights. And I know everybody that you can highlight a PDF. I get that. But uh, old habits die hard. So there you go. I'm with you. So uh, Dr. Perlmutter, can you just remind everyone, the book is Drop Acid, um, all the places that people can find you if they also want to look at your other books, which I would encourage them. Sure. Well, my books are all on the online uh, retailers. Um, I'm at my uh, website, which is oddly enough, drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. And that's where you'll find links to all the things, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I haven't, haven't adopted tip TikTok yet, but uh, who knows? My team is my team is pushing that. I don't know. I, it's really quite enough, if you ask me. I'm with um, you, and everything will be in the show notes too. Every place that people can find you and great. Um, One other thing I will mention: I do have a YouTube channel called The Empowering Neurologist. You know, empowering with knowledge. So that's where I get to interview interesting thought leaders and you know and and gain their wisdom. So so there you go. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.